instead of having a one size fits all, what would be really helpful and potentially more efficient and productive is if we can identify certain particular populations and be able to target those NARD campaigns to people who are most likely to respond to them. They're not taking away the option for you, they're just making one option look a lot better than the other. Always present the customers with options. Don't assume that I would do the same thing. At what point is that manipulative or and how much agency does the individual really have over themselves to make that decision? There are those cases I would categorize as misuse of nudges. The hopeful idea is that you're saving lives. Hello and welcome back again to this episode of the Marginal Babble podcast. In today's episode, I sit down to talk with Dr. Cecilia Chen out of the University of Exeter to discuss behavioural nudges and how they can be used to impact economic decision making. Dr. Chen has a PhD in economics from George Mason University and her research focuses on behavioural economics and game theory. As ever, reference research material is included in the description down below and without further ado, let's get into the episode. Enjoy. So nudge is actually a kind of old age concept, but then it was kind of brought uh, front and center after Richard Thaler got the Nobel Prize a couple years back. So when you talk about nudge, essentially it's actually a technique that we're trying to change the environment that you're making the decisions, but without removing any of the options that you have. And when we're making those changes at the same time, we're not actually inducing significant changes in the incentives when you're making those decisions. So you can view nudge as a really light-handed little action or intervention that we're trying to change how people might be more likely to choose one option over the other by making small changes in the environment. We're hoping that, you know, on the margin, people are more likely to choose one option over the other one. So give you um, one kind of... um, more subtle kind of example that you see probably all the time, you know that whenever you go to a website nowadays that you usually, the website would ask you to, you know, think about the cookies and stuff like that. There are some tricky website. So they have, you always usually have two options. Either you want to consent and follow upon whatever settings that they have, or you want to do your own customized ones. So in some trickier website that they are subtly using sort of a nudge technique is that the way that they color those two Uh, options. So in our head, what we associate with, if it's an action that's clickable, we associate with a kind of a prominent color. So think about green colors, and we associate an option that's not available with a grayish color because we assume that, oh, that button is not clickable. So you can see there are some websites, basically, they try to make the option for you to customize the cookie settings in a more kind of a grayish color that induces you to think, oh, maybe that option is not available, but that's not true. The button is clickable. It's a trick in your mind or in the kind of uh, in the decision making environment. So that is kind of not a so nice example of a nudge, right? So yeah. the 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 website um, owners, what have they? They never eliminated the option that you have, but they did change the decision making environment such that people are more likely to say, "Oh, I consent to the, uh, the the cookie policies, what have you," rather than you know the the customized one. Yeah, and I've definitely seen that on websites as well, where like the actual the accept button or allow cookies or whatever it is is maybe in sort of like a white or like a brightish color. And then the cancel button is actually in maybe sort of a gray and things like that. So you don't actually think it's clickable. Now, again, you're not like necessarily consciously thinking of this when you're just sort of scrolling through websites, your immediate reaction is, oh, click. 
And again, that sort of goes back to what these nudges are about. It's not necessarily about taking away your options. It's more about sort of incentive, putting an incentive in place for you to make a decision. Now, to your point as well, my understanding from this as well is that those can be used in quite a productive way. So there was obviously a lot of research done on things like 401k plans. On I think Ian Garlepper did one of the initial studies was on like jam consumption and things like that where the idea is actually or even in like a governmental policy perspective to try and make you to entice you or incentivize you to make a better decision for yourself but of course this is also used by businesses marketing teams to potentially incentivize the behavior that they would like instead exactly so one of the more going to give you two examples. One of them, both of them are kind of um, controversial in a way. Um, and one of them actually stirred a lot of debate within the academic kind of community, which is um, so in a lot of countries, when you're applying, so for, for example, in the in the United States, when you're applying for your driver's license, there's actually a option for you to uh, should you be in an accident and you would be automatically a, a be allocated or agree to be an organ donor. Mm -hmm. So there were a couple of states are thinking about making the organ donation option a default, meaning that whenever you go and renew your driver's license, if you don't actively make a decision to opt out, then by default, you actually opt in to be a organ donor. So the intention was actually pretty nice thinking about, you know, we have a lot of cases, a organ shortage that a lot of people are waiting for those kind of fresh organs to be available. So we do want to encourage more people to donate their organs. But the problem kind of the, the controversy part is by having that little nudge, you are actually taking, well, not really taking away the options, but you are kind of playing more paternalistic kind of way to say, hey, you know, in an underhanded way, we want people to, you know, without them knowing or not, a lot of times people are not even paying attention, become a organ donor. So that become one of the more controversial cases for nudges. So that's one example, probably we can perceivably say, hey, there are societal benefits to it. Maybe there are some arguments to make it to do this sort of nudge. Another one is actually more on the business world when you're thinking there's a word called dark patterns. I don't know whether you have ever heard of that. No, I haven't. Uh, a lot of designers, so product designers, um, they in their kind of community, there's a term called the dark pattern. So that's kind of a more um, sometimes more unethical in a way use of the nudge. So they're changing in the environment in such a way that it really pushes you to do something that the the designers or the company wants, and they're not necessarily good for the customers. Period. And so those are called the kind of the dark patterns. Right. Yeah. So, I, and it's quite in, in, in fairness, quite a controversial topic potentially with behavioral economics, because it's what it really is, is dicing up about how much free will are you giving to people? Um, Cause it's not like you're taking away the options for people, but you're quite clearly incentivizing a level of behavior. And obviously the, where the discussion really comes in is at what point is that manipulative or, and how much agency does the individual really have over themselves to make that decision? Um, I guess what it really comes down to is what the, the intent or the actual effects of it are. So like you say, in the organ donor case, the, the, the hopeful idea is that you're actually save more, so you're saving lives. More people are going to be organ donors, more people that would want to be organ donors, but maybe did, just didn't want to didn't want to sign up because of the, the administrative nature of it or just didn't know how are actually able to deliver those services. And actually, we get a healthier population out of it. But as you said, there's also things like cookies, for example, where they're using this kind of psych psychology element of economics to really 
sort of push you in maybe to spending more money or allowing them to take your data and things like that. So it's just kind of like a little bit of a controversial sub- subject in that regard, um, even if it is sort of very, very interesting. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I think our study, that there are different types of nudges. Um, I think the, the 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 nudges, the type of nudges that we used, are actually a lot more subtle mm-hmm. than the ones that we have cited above. Because the the ones that the, a couple of examples that we kind of walk through, they're actually changing the actual decisions that you're making. So how or interface when you're making those decisions. So in our study, so Segway, is actually the 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 way that we present those nudges are a lot more subtle. So they don't even constitute part of your decision making interface per se it was just a set of informations that you may know okay interesting so to that point then how do how did nudges factor into your research in this regard and what were the, the objectives and your aims of the research that you were doing yeah, so one of the, um, the, the the reason that we kind of start this uh, this project um, is kind of twofold. Uh, first of all, I, we know there are a lot of established studies basically looking at different nudges. But then when you look at all those literature, uh, literatures together, they actually the results are somewhat mixed. So it depends on different contexts. Sometimes the same kind of style of nudge would work in one particular environment, but not in others. Um, so that's why we kind of want to understand what is, you know, about nudge that what are the differentiating factors that potentially can help us understand why it works in a particular scenario, but not in others. So that's the first reason. The second reason is um, in economics, you know, nudge is kind of a new, uh, more hip thing that coming out to economics. But if you go back to the basics about economics, the principle number one is incentives matter. So that's why we also want to benchmark it against, you know, the golden rule, which is incentives, trying to understand, okay, so compare with the hardcore incentives, how does nudge fare? Obviously, we know that nudge is very subtle, it's not going to be as powerful. That we know. Um, So we want to just put them aside to see, you know, how do they compare in the same context? And we also want to understand that when we have nudge together with incentives, do they interact? Do they enhance each other? Do they kind of undercut each other? So those are kind of the two reasons that we um, kind of started thinking about uh, this particular study. I see. So it's also like the interplay in between nudges and other types of incentives. Because as you said, nudges are... uh, not simpler, but like they're different. Like I said, they're more subtle. And so then they might not have the same impact as like a, a, a big financial incentive by the government or whatever that is. But to your point as well, is there a scenario where you use an incentive? Um, is there a scenario where a nudge is actually better? Or even um, more interestingly, is there a scenario where you in, you put an in, in an incentive? Sorry, I can't speak today. And you also <laughs> use a nudge to be able to extrapolate that and make it more prominent potentially when they use it. Yeah, or maybe you want to combine those two things together, right? If you really want to have a big uh, behavioral change and you have the budget for it, maybe you want to kind of double up those two kind of uh, two tools to help you achieve even better outcome. Um, so that's kind of the the couple of questions that we set out to answer uh, with this project. So what the, what were the types of nudge that you were looking at in the study? Yeah, so the ones that, as I mentioned earlier, this is actually a very uh, a lot even more subtler type of um, nudge techniques. So we're basically just telling you informations about what others are doing. Um, that's it. So it's really subtle. In one scenarios, we don't tell you any inf- additional information. In other scenarios, we'll tell you, hey, what others are doing in you know for people who are in a similar situations, and that's it. 
and the decision-making environment is exactly the same. And the only difference that we made is the provision of information. Okay, interesting. So how did you structure the actual study then itself and sort of the experiment you were running? Um, so the study actually includes two sets of uh, experiments. And the first set of experiment is what we call the field experiment. The field experiment essentially means that um, the people, the subjects that are, we're testing in, they actually, they're not aware that they're in an experiment. So it is a field experiment within a lab experiment setting. So generally at the University of Exeter, we have a experimental kind of lab that we frequently invite our students to come in and do laboratory experiments. So this time around, our testing is, they are in a, we're inviting them to a laboratory experimental study. And we're basically asking them to log on to the a particular software uh, during a dedicated time period, uh, which is a nine o'clock for them. Most students, it's kind of difficult. And that's our what we're trying to measure punctuality. Uh, as they come in, they actually don't know we're actually caring about their punctual behavior. They still think oh, okay. that they're just coming in, joining the lab, conducting a normal you know, lab as they always do without knowing the real experiment is on participating the experiment uh, in a timely manner. Right. And it's important to do that kind of thing as well, just to make sure that people aren't mitigating or changing their behaviors to make sure they're more on time or less on time, things like that. So it's quite interesting. Exactly. Yeah. So that's great. Yeah. So what did you find them sort of doing this research? What were your, your conclusions or what were the, the results that you were able to find? So for, for this particular settings, we have a couple of different conditions. So some people were told uh, what others are doing. So for example, if you're, in your, if you're allocated to the particular conditions where, where I'm telling you, hey, you know what, um, majority of you know, the, the, the people who participate in this particular experiment were late or punctual uh, in the previous day. Uh, and, you know, please, you know, always uh, come into the study, you know, in a punctual way. So the, the differences there is whether or not we give you that information about your peers. And um, to add to that, the setting, the experiment that we do is actually a two-day um, session. So we know that how you behaved in the first day and that information becomes how we construct the message to send to you before you participate in the experiment on the second day. So that's why we can say um, in, a, in a kind of a truthful way that what happened in the previous day and what others are doing in your group, whether majority of them were punctual or whether majority of them were actually late uh, for that previous day. And then we ask you, hey, please come in on time for the second day. And then we measure whether or not you join the study uh, in a punctual way for the second day. Okay, so, so did they end up being punctual on the second day or? <laughs> no, well, that's a, yeah, that's a good these are students at the uh, end of the day, so I'm not entirely sure how uh, <laughs> how responsive they would have been, at least uh, anecdotally, but I don't know what the results were. So what ended up happening is, because it's two-day, on average for everybody, um, they are a bit more punctual uh, for, for the second day than for the first day. But um, between the, since we have a different various conditions that people are randomly assigned to, what we found is that for those people who are assigned to the kind of a norm information or the social information treatment, they're not uh, changing their behavior more drastically than those who are in the control group, so who didn't uh, receive any message. So essentially what we found is that the normative information nudge had zero impact uh, on our subjects' uh, second-day punctual behavior. However, so in those experiments, we also tested the impact of incentives. We're basically telling people, if you are punctual on the second day, we're going to give you some amount of money. 
um, if that's the case. And we found that, well, you know what? It looks like incentive always worked for those people who are allocated to the treatment condition where they would receive incentive for being punctual. Yeah, they are drastically, significantly more likely to be punctual than those people who are in the control condition. Okay, so interesting. So in some regards, so in some specific, specific instances, the nudges weren't effective at all, but in other instances, they were actually being quite effective. Yeah, so for the first experiment, the nudge itself didn't really work at all. Um, only the incentive were really effective. And then we kind of conducted a second study, and it's set up in the environment what we call a prisoner's dilemma. Mm-hmm. So that's a slightly different setting. And also this experiment is not conducted with university students anymore. This study is actually conducted on the um, kind of online subjects platform. I think for this one, we might have used Amazon Turk. Um, so the Amazon Turk is essentially a place where everybody can go and uh, try to finish a task. And that's the setting that we we've, we did uh, for the second uh, experiment. Could you just outline for me quickly what a prisoner's dilemma is, just in case people don't know, and how it sort of factors into that second experiment? Fantastic. So uh, prisoner dilemma is um, it's actually a quite a famous uh, game. If you ever take the game theory class, I think the one of the first things that I when I was uh, teaching the game theory class, I always talk about this story about prisoner's dilemma. So prisoner's dilemma actually comes from a little story. So it was kind of abstracted from a story. So thinking about if you and your mate, you guys went and robbed a bank. Now, the bank reported to police and the police kind of know that, you know, definitely you guys are in the culprits for that particular crime. So they will bring you to the police station for kind of interrogation. And the the, the goal is that they're going to put you in separate rooms trying to see whether they can get some evidence from any of you guys to say, hey, to say we actually did this, we didn't do this. So when you think about this, right, so if you're put in the, the separate rooms, if any of you ever said the other one is responsible, then you're going to get a deal, say you're going to be exempt from whatever punishment the police and your mate will be solely responsible for the crime. And if you both said you're responsible for this particular crime, then both of you will go to jail and get punished for this act. But there's other option. If you guys are able to work together, you know, in, although in the separate rooms, both of you potentially would end up in a way better situation, which is if none of you admit to the crime at the same time. If none of you was admit, uh, admit this particular crime, the police cannot find any evidence. Both of you guys will be exempt from jail and live with whatever you got. So there are, so you can see this particular game actually has a kind of a, misaligned incentive, um, you potentially have incentives to tell your mate to say that, you know, you didn't do it, your mate did it. But your mate also has the same incentive to tell you rather than him. So the kind of particular prediction for this game is that, you know, it's very likely that both of you guys can end up in the worst situation is you tell your mate and your mate tell you both of you guys end up in jail. But there is a better outcome, which is really hard to reach. If you trust each other enough or you know each, each other enough, then you would actually both not admit to the crime and you, co- you cooperate together and that ends you with the best scenario. So that's kind of the general setting of the prisoner's um, dilemma. I hope it makes sense. No, of course, no, it, it's, it's just like this one of these classic cases, right, in which yeah. essentially in a situation where if two individuals playing a game follow their incentives, they end up at, at what I think is like a Pareto inefficient outcome, right? So it's 
by not cooperating, they actually end up at a worse outcome because they end up deviating where Whereas, in fact, if they had both just cooperated, they could have had um, a much more efficient outcome. Exactly. But and what I think was was shown in the prisoners tell Amber, the, the only real way you can overcome that is through cooperation. But as soon as someone break, if you play that over multiple games, so multiple instances of robberies or something like that, in this case, um, as soon as one person deviates from the cooperation, it kind of like tanks the situation and everyone um, starts acting within their own incentives. And then they end up at a very you know a, a lesser outcome essentially so in this regard how did you set up the prisoner's dilemma in the second experiment so this we did a kind of a large n um kind of prisoner's dilemma which means that the usual setup for a prisoner's dilemma is um, you have two person and you choose whether or not you want to cooperate or not so in our setup is instead of two people we actually have about uh 10 people large groups playing this game simultaneously um, but the options are exactly the same. You have two options, either choose to cooperate uh, or you choose to defect, essentially. And then if you choose to defect, then um, and, and if your partner choose to cooperate, you get a higher payoff. Um, and then if you, both of you guys choose to defect, you get the worst outcome. And if both of you or the, the, the majority of the team choose to cooperate, then you get the, the best outcomes. Um, so, I mean, to abstract the way, what we're trying to measure essentially is your likelihood to cooperate, because we know that if majority of the group are able to cooperate, you arrive at an outcome which is way uh, kind of superior to all the possible payoffs that you would get. So for this environment, we're just trying to see, okay, are you more likely to be cooperative knowing that what others are doing or not, whether kind of the, the nudge, the social information nudge here would have an impact or not. So we essentially follow the similar format our, as our previous um, field study. So we have a two-day uh, experiment. We invite people to join so that we get to know how they behave in their first day. And then before they start the second day in experiment, we tell them, hey, guess what? Those people that you would be working with today, here's what they did yet uh, for the previous day. So we'll tell them, hey, either majority of people that you have been matched with, they played cooperative uh, move from the previous day, or we'll tell you, you know, majority of the person that you matched with, guess what? Uh, they played a defect in the previous day. So tell me what you want to do. So that's kind of the, the setup for the second study. So interestingly, you found that the nudges were effective in this second study. As Very well. effective. Very effective. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And, and why do you think that was the case then? Was that just because they were able to, it allowed some sort of cooperation potentially, or what do you think it was? So we're thinking this actually has to do with the, the game itself. So when you think about the prisoner's dilemma game itself, it does rely on how much would you like to trust your partner? So without, so if you think about in a purely selfish way, the game is actually kind of a little bit leaning towards having zero trust because it choosing defect is a dominant strategy regardless what your partner is doing. But um, if you have some of a little bit of a kind of positive belief that your partner might be cooperating, then that makes sense for you to thinking about maybe you should go with a cooperative move. So that's why by providing the social information about what your partner actually did in the previous day might help inform you how you think about what they're going to do this time around. And by telling you that, guess what? Majority of them are actually cooperative. That basically increase your kind of belief about maybe I'm actually matched with a bunch of good people and who really want this better outcome for all of us. Therefore, I'm actually happy to take the risk and choose a cooperative option and see what happens. Right. Which, I mean, I find this rather interesting because 
situations of prisoner's dilemma actually do crop up quite frequently depending on you know whatever industry and sort of globally as well i was literally just having a conversation um the other day in one of these episodes in regards to fishing permits essentially and what we was kind of shown there was a kind of a prisoner's dilemma in that situation as well in regards to over yeah. overfishing of resources right you have this common pool resource of fishing and sort of public waters and things like that and, um, and what you want to do is cooperate so that you're essentially um not over exploiting the fish so it's a sustainable resource and things like that but if, it, if you take the prisoner's dilemma example because people have their self um incentives and to basically fish as much as they can what you end up potentially in some instances is a scenario where everyone's overfishing because everyone thinks everyone else is going to overfish and then you end up with a, a very you know no fish at the end of the day further down the line in the long run so taking this kind of research how do you think it can be applied to situations like that of prisoners dilemmas in the real world where we could help potentially nudge people or even industries or different sectors into positive action I mean, I mean, this is a little bit over extrapolating the results, you know, usually sure. the results are a bit more applicable within its, its own settings. Um, so if I were to kind of bring the, the findings that we have in this particular project outward, I would say that, you know, probably, you know, having a little bit of uh, information about the partners that you're matched with and what is their attitude towards being cooperative uh, or defective will potentially help you kind of thinking about what your next move. So in a particular situation that you mentioned about fishing, I mean, it really depends on what you want to achieve. Let's say the government really want to kind of not overfish, then it might be helpful to kind of tell everyone that in a, in a, in a way, hopefully that's truthful, that everyone wanted to kind of restrict the amount of fishing that they do. And given that majority of them are actually happy to cooperate then maybe that it would have an influence on your propensity to choose the cooperative option. So, I mean, the, the, the main hurdle that especially in the prison's dilemma environment is actually trying to get over the trust, right? So if you, you don't want to be the sucker that no. you would choose a nice option while your partner is actually choosing the nasty one and causing you to lose out. But if I can change your belief to think about maybe you're not going to be the sucker as much in this particular game, then that potentially will lead to a better outcome when both of the parties are willing to choose a more cooperative uh, option. Yeah. And sort of going off of that, what research would you like to see done in the future or maybe off the back of this research to sort of maybe enhance the results or just get some real um, sort of feedback? And wh where do you think or what specific research would you like to see that we could, would you really think would add value? Um, just coming out of this? Oh, it's a great question. I mean, one of the key findings that we really want to highlight that I feel like wasn't emphasized enough in the literature is the heterogeneous effect. So what basically means that the same incentives or the same nudges will work very differently depending on the type of person. So the one very consistent finding that across our two studies um, is that depending on the type of person, the direction that they responded to the nudges or incentives are interestingly kind of the same direction, that that's the consistency that we're able to see across two studies with different subjects and they're across different contexts. So what we found is that if in both studies, we kind of defined what is the desirable behavior, right? So think about the first study, we're thinking about punctuality. We all agree, and it's also the case within the subjects who, who joined this study, that being punctual is the right thing to do. In the second study, in a prisoner's dilemma, um, kind of we all agree that being cooperative is the right thing to do. 
So what we found is that if you are the type of person who generally have an innate incentive to do the right thing, and that's the way that we kind of separate people to two kind of types of people saying, hey, are you the type of person who believe the right thing to do and who gain joy or kind of utility coming out of doing the right thing? Then you're one type. And there's also different type of people who just don't really care and don't feel like there's any importance associated with the right thing to do. And they respond to the nudges or you know other interventions in a very different way. And what we found across those two studies is that if you are the type of people who generally wants to do the right thing, and have the innate preferences for the right thing, actually none of those nudges have very significant impact on you. So you're already doing the right thing, maybe not all the time, but a lot of the times. So it doesn't matter what kind of nudges I put on you, you're not going to change your behavior as much. However, those kind of interventions or nudges are super effective on people who do not have the innate preferences for the right thing. And that's where we see, oh, a lot of big impacts are actually coming from having interventions on those type of people. So what would be nice going forward that we would like to see more is, you know, instead of having a one size fits all kind of nudges, um, you know, you usually see having the campaign is kind of campaign rolling out to everybody. What would be really helpful and potentially more efficient and productive is that we, if we can identify certain particular populations by their types and particularly be able to target uh, those large campaigns to people who are most likely to respond to them, I believe that that would be a lot more kind of efficient and cost effective in a way. Yeah, I think that's interesting as well from the standpoint of particularly in these kind of scenarios. And this is it says a lot about people in general, different, I think different nudges are going to affect different types of people differently. So in this study, you used a set of students, which um, yeah. one general thing that's sort of talked about generally just in social science and these kind of studies is that a lot of the um, experiments are done on students and not actually on like the general population at large. And that comes with its own drawbacks. And because, you know, you're only looking at typically much younger people at the beginning of their careers and things like that. And they may act differently to someone that say settled in their careers that are like 70s, you know, 60s or what have you. But it's interesting that how you separate out and have two separate experiments in that example to sort of show the differences in that regard. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, especially regarding the students' population. Uh, if you look at majority of the studies in kind of experimental economics or behavior economics, I would say majority of the studies are using, like you said, undergraduate uh, students. And a lot of conclusions that we derive are based on those undergraduate students. But I have to say, though, um, there are a lot of efforts kind of within the community to try different samples and trying to see, you know, one of the stylized findings that we have based on the students. Do they change, you know, if we choose the different subjects polls? I think one comforting thing that I want you to take away is, you know, for most of the very stylized findings that they do replicate, obviously the magnitude is going to be different uh, when we observe them with undergraduate students and more when we observe, you know, they, you know, go into the job market and have a job for a couple of years. Um, those major findings, they still replicate, but the usually the kind of the level, the magnitude is a bit smaller but they do. So that's one comforting bit to say that, you know, we're not necessarily biased the observations by focusing a lot on the kind of undergraduate students. Um, so that's kind of uh, what I want you to definitely take away. There are a lot of efforts trying to use different subjects polls. No, that's good as well. And it sounds as though it, there's not like an extreme difference between undergraduates and recently graduates, essentially. And but although I'm sure there are differences and but there seems to be there's yes. a lot of research going on to sort of 
replicate these results or see whether they stand up in broader populations as well. Um, in terms of nudges and, and in behavioral economics, in terms of how we interact in our daily lives and how governments use them, can you give me any more examples of how potentially governments use nudges effectively, potentially in the UK? I know that David Cameron was quite instrumental in setting up, I think it was some sort of behavioral economics committee within the government, I think in approximately 2006, I'm not too sure, um, to help use behavioral economics and these things within government policy and things like that can you give me any more examples of how nudges are being used by governments potentially or in other industries um, more widely speaking yeah um that's a great question so i think the the i think it might be david cameron time that there is a, a behavioral insights team yep. who used to report to the cabinet but then later on, I think they spun off and became a private consulting firm. I think that's um, what you're referring to. Right, okay. That they do use a lot of kind of the findings from behavior economics trying to do interventions. So one prominent example, I think, uh, that are really effective is with the HMRC. Um, so I think one of the studies that they did uh, with the, the behavioral insights team is the how they craft the letters that they send to the uh, people with self-assessment. So most people in the UK would do the standard pay as uh, you earn kind of system, so nothing you have to do. But there are people who have to do self-assessment, and then there was some worries about people, you know, not reporting things correctly, what have you. So what they do is that they HMRC would send letters to to some people that they identify potentially have problems and left and right. And one of the things that they did as part of the nudge is actually they were changing the contents in the HMRC letters. Um, for example, I think one of the conditions that they have is trying to emphasize that paying the taxes is your responsibility as the citizen or as a resident of the UK, trying to see whether that would potentially you know, help with the amount of uh, declarations self-employed people would do. Um, they have a couple of different conditions. I vaguely remember that some of the nudge conditions were less effective than others, but they they were able to identify there are some conditions that really uh, helped uh, increase the average amount of declarations that self-assessment people will provide. So if you increase the amount of declarations, it means that more tax incomes for uh, the government, um, that's a good thing. So that's one example where I think the, the government generally really like this approach. It's very cost effective. You're just sending out a couple of letters and there's some information they're putting the letters and that's it. And then you actually see the revenue increase uh, for the tax agency. Yeah. And I think that's actually one point that's actually quite interesting to note in regards to nudges and how people use them. Because as you kind of point out, sometimes these are more effective than others. Sometimes they're not particularly effective and particularly when you compare them to other types of incentives, you know, monetary, you know, whatever it may be. But I think one thing that's quite interesting to point out is actually a lot of these nudges in terms of how you can implement them they can actually be very cost effective. They don't take a lot. It might just be something in regards to changing the wording on like a parking permit, for example, presenting something in regards to. So the example that I've, I've brought up before is that um, I think parking permits say, used to say, OK, this is the fine amount. If if it goes up, it increases. But what they now do, obviously, is they say, right, the parking fee is this much. Um, but if you pay it in a short amount of time, you know, like two weeks or something, and it becomes less, and it kind of plays on that. Um, we're more sensitive to losses than we are to gains, um, which is another part yeah. of behavioral economics. And it kind of nudges you into that regard. And all that really is, is changing the wording. So I think in, in some regards, some of these nudges, although 
they may or may not be some of them will be more or less effective is that they are actually very cost effective it might simply just be this changing the whirling on something changing the options on something um they had very good success with this and i know in a study on regards to 401k plans in america which to those of you yeah, who are not yeah that's a good right one. right where to the if to those of you who aren't aware 401k pension plans are similar to you know employer contribution plans in the uk and because of a theory called choice paradox um where actually they actually found that if you have more options for something you're actually less likely to pick the better option objectively for yourself because you have this kind of choice overload there's too much to think about potentially you feel like you're making the wrong decision if you deviate and what they found in the study is if you reduce the options for these 401k pension plans you are actually more likely to pick a plan that was better for you in the long run essentially objectively in terms of giving you an increasingly amount of options which kind of does go against typical classical economic assumptions that and the axioms you know more is better than less you know thereby saying if you have more options you're more likely to find an option that better fits you and your needs and therefore you're more likely to make a purchase or a decision where in actual fact you know things like choice paradox do present themselves and actually diminish potentially in this regard, at least, uh, the returns they could be getting on their four hundred one k pension plan. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a very good observations. Um, but then, so I mean, ever since like when Richard got his Nobel, like there really is a big wave of push for nudges. I think later on in the years that there are some pushbacks about the effectiveness of nudge, which I I, I buy it. Like we we show in you know one of our studies, the nudge was completely ineffective. Um, and then the other environment, it, uh, it's kind of effective. So it's, uh, I think nowadays when we have more kind of evidence generated using nudge, you, you do start to see that maybe it is not as effective and cost effective as we thought uh, when this idea was a lot more popular. Now we have a lot more observations now. We actually do observe a lot of examples where, you know, not just really not doing anything. Um, so I think it just it's it's nice to kind of have a balanced view of it. It's not the panacea that cures every problems. Um, but one thing I do agree though is that all the studies that you have mentioned, including our studies, our nudge really taking in a very subtle way. We're only manipulating the information that you receive. We really didn't interact or interfere too much with your actual choice or the way that you make your decisions. But I do think that as the example that we raised at the very start of the conversation that, you know, a lot of companies on the commercial side, they were taking nudge into a kind of more extreme dimensions where they are interfering a little bit more with the actual decision making environment itself. Sure. And when they do this, they they do they are a lot more powerful than what we did. Like oh, just simply telling you something and hoping that information will change your mind. I think that that is some place I do feel like it's a little bit worrying for the kind of commercial side, the industry side, to take things to the more extreme level to to benefit whatever they want the consumer to do. Um, so I just think that you know maybe there should be some sort of regulations to kind of make safeguard. Um, some of those kind of potential unethical acts. Sure. And particularly in that scenario you give there, if the stronger nudges you give, the stronger response you're going to get. And if that's evidence in the literature, then that provides an increased incentive for these kind of companies to use those in potentially nefarious ways. The problem with, and you sort of mentioned regulation there, I think some of this stuff is, I think quite rightly should be regulated. I think people have made um, a lot of observations on that for the points, you know, people are very worried about potentially being in some way or form manipulated or whatnot. I do think it's quite hard in some regards to actually 
put down legislation that does actually affect it though because how do you like like i say how, how for example in the the cookies example you used it's not like you know if they're not taking away the option for you they're just making one option look a lot better than the other um you could even use this example potentially on like the iphone for example the fact that iMessage comes up in a nice blue but all other text messages come through green and subconsciously you think oh i don't want to have an android phone or something like that um, and so how, like the question really sort of ends, how do you actually sort of form meaningful legislation that can actually impact and sort of mitigate these issues? Well, that's a great question. I don't think I would be able to answer that. But think about a different example. I think the cookie thing, I think the financial incentive here is not drastic. So even if you give out information, it doesn't really matter. Change your marketing stuff. But think about one of the things that's my personal <laughs> thing that I really don't like, the auto renewals. Remember, yes, I don't know yes. whether you have this experience, right? When you subscribe to a service, you really enjoy that service, but for that limited time, and then you forgot to cancel the auto renewal. And at that stage, you're like, oh God, I really hope it was an option for me to decide whether or not I want to renew for another year, rather than assume that I will renew for the next year. So that is actually a kind of a kind of tricky way of using the nudge which belongs to part of the default option. So what is set as a default would change the trajectory of your decisions. You know what? Personally, I feel really annoyed about this. I don't know whether it looks like you concur as well. Oh, yeah, I know. I completely agree. And particularly over the right? last sort of 10 years or so, business models have moved to much more of a subscription base as, as opposed to just buying a license, particularly things like software outright. And I think part of that pressure really comes from valuation of companies. Quite frankly, if you, you could have two similar companies, one that just sells, you know, individual amounts on individual basis and then for the same amount of revenue as this other company, but this other company has a subscription-based model, that subscription-based model company is actually worth a lot more in the eyes of many people or in business valuation because people are contracted, well, not contracted and you can cancel it, but they're less likely to... Uh, basically get rid of their subscription and so they're actually valued them a lot more so a lot of businesses are just moving away from standard licenses or individual amounts to subscription-based models i think we're only going to see more of that and um, there's even talk about things like um, microsoft doing a subscription-based model for things like windows and things like that so it's yeah again i'm not entirely sure how you even go about mitigating regulation that you just turn around and say right you can't have subscription-based model well no because there are instances where i think those things are actually really really useful and it does and there are benefits to it hopefully things are, if you're on a subscription basis things get updated and things like that but it definitely does play into people that the consumer base that maybe just wants to dip in and dip out of usership they end up spending a lot more money yeah so like i would if there's a politician that i can try to influence i would ask them <laughs> Can you please stop the auto renewal? Always present the customers with options. Don't assume that I would do the same thing as the previous subscription cycle, whatever. Let me choose. But you know, there is a reason why that all the companies choose the auto renewal because that's the default kind of option literature. You know that once I default you into this, either you don't pay attention, which is probably the majority of us who regret being auto enrolled in that thing again. Um, there's very few people who actually willingly want to kind of renew for the next year, what have we. So I think this kind of action, I, I personally, as a consumer, I really detest it because then I have to contact customer service and I actually don't want to review. And sometimes I say, oh, I'm sorry, yep. the payment has been taken. You can have to stick it for another year. Um, I, I think that is a kind of not an ideal use of the nudge uh, kind of technique. 
I would hope some sort of legislations to kind of actually release the freedom of the choice to the consumers and don't make assumptions about their purchasing decisions for the next um, subscription, whatever cycle. Yeah, and I think definitely one thing they could absolutely do, and this is one of my particular bugbears when it comes to subscription models, which are already a bit of a bugbear, quite frankly, as we've kind of pointed out, is where you're able to subscribe to something in an app or something, but then you actually have to go on the desktop browser or anything like that away from it to actually cancel it. Uh, And in my mind, if you've been able to subscribe to something in an app, making it... The only reason you would do that is, quite frankly, unless there is something I'm unaware of, to make it more difficult so people don't unsubscribe or forget to unsubscribe. I think if you're able to subscribe to something in an app, you should be able to also unsubscribe from it in an app. Um, But even things like Amazon do that, so you have to go on their website to unsubscribe from Prime and things like that. So hopefully, I think that's a bit of legislation potentially that could be put in place. If you're able to subscribe to something in an app, then you have to also be able to unsubscribe from it internet potentially because that's a very specific example that i think could have very wide um impacts as well and i think should be relatively easy to potentially fix i totally agree i totally agree so i think there are those cases i i do think it's somewhat of a too extensive i would categorize as misuse of nudges um which are not doesn't have a clear benefits the consumers per se, but it does clear benefit the the companies. I I think there should be something, you know, here to protect the consumers. No, absolutely. And like I say, with these nudges and things like that, it there is a very big difference in between a nudge that's used, for example, in a 401k plan to make sure that or at least help you make a more informed decision about a 401k plan, which massively affects down the line your ability to retire and your wealth in the long run compared to when a company uses it in this kind of example, just to sort of extract more money out of you. I think it is almost like a, you can almost make a moral equivalency. Okay. There's, we're willing to have stronger nudges in examples where clearly the Mm. purpose of it is to benefit the public in those regards, as opposed to maybe putting more stringent regulations on where it's like a consumer based item. I think again, something that could be quite interesting. I guess where we'll sort of just round off this conversation then is where would you, what kind of behavioral economics research would you like to see conducted in the future or or what research have you got coming up potentially in the future that you think is going to really provide some insight into this field? I mean, there are so many things that, a couple of things that I'm kind of doing and some of my colleagues in Exeter are doing are thinking about the gender differences. Mm. Um, So I think there has been a big topic and especially this year's Nobel Prize is actually awarded to economists who has been investigating the gender pay gap between uh, men and women and understand why we're seeing those things. So a lot of my work and my colleagues' work in Exeter are particularly addressing those, trying to understand why very capable women are not selecting into leadership roles and why capable women are not paid, even when they're made uh, working on the same jobs, but why do they have different salaries? Is that the way that they negotiate the contract? Is that way they can they kind of do the job? Um, so those are the areas that, you know, coming from the behavioral economics side, ex ante, if you believe in the idea of meritocracy, that, you know, we should be rewarded by how, how well we work, then we shouldn't anticipate for most of the cases the way age differentials, but we do. So there are a lot of kind of behavioral mechanisms that we're trying to understand that it's not the standard kind of economic framework. So some things that we're looking at is that, you know, there's gender differences in the willingness to compete. 
and there's gender differences in things like women are more likely to volunteer and do things that are not promotable. Um, so, so I think this area is where I'm really passionate about and trying to see that, you know, whether we can contribute to understand underlying mechanisms and we can potentially propose uh, things that for government or, you know, other organizations to adopt to try to kind of narrow that gap. Yeah, honestly, that's something I really, really like to see some more detailed research on, particularly with this kind of pay gap situation, because as you quite rightly said, we, we want a meritocracy, generally speaking. And so if there are individuals in our society that are, for whatever reason, just not being remunerated um, a particular rate compared to others because of just gender differences or things like that, then that is an issue. But at the same time, what you also don't want is to take away individuals like personal freedoms. So depending on what those, there could be such a multivariate equation as to why gaps may exist. And personally, I would just like to see some more research into the actual specific reasons for those differences. Is it just because they don't want to take on particular um, roles potentially that would be highly more remunerated? Is it because then um, the situations where negotiation hasn't been as optimum, in which cases are there things that we can put in place to help mitigate that and actually encourage um, better negotiation in those instances? Or is it a situation where there is just sort of discrimination and we need to sort of address those issues and sort of stamp them out? I'd just love to get more information on, on that. So it's good to see that you're potentially doing some more research in that regard. Is there anything you would like to, um, for the people at home to go have a look at? Is there anything you're working on currently that you would like to sort of draw people to? Uh, a couple of things. I think one of the papers we published recently is actually looking into the impact of climate change on productivity. Um, this is also kind of climate change is one of the bigger topics in recent years. What we found is actually interestingly uh, for workers who are in a temperature controlled environment, still extreme weather actually significantly reduced their productivity. So mm. they're working in a very well kind of air uh, temperature controlled environment, producing things that does need kind of precision, attention and care. Even in that kind of well controlled environment still the, the temperature change drastically reduced their productivity. Um, and we think that this is a very important finding to say that, you know, don't think technology can solve everything. Given the climate change, thinking about controlling the temperature would be able to mitigate or negate any of the negative impact that the climate change might have on the workers' productivity. That's not true, at least in this particular context that we have. So that's something that, you know, we think it's kind of important um, for people to know. Excellent. Well, again, links to those kind of uh, those papers and stuff will be included in the description down below. Thank you very much for joining us again today, guys. And until the next time, see you soon. See you guys. Bye. Thank you for watching this episode of the Marginal Babble podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider liking and subscribing down below, as well as commenting any future research topics you would like to see discussed. But until then, see you soon.